It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Today's sermon is pre-recorded. Lord, I pray that as I share this gospel message, that you will quicken it by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'll give us both conviction and understanding. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. There are some passages of Scripture that I simply can't escape from. As I'm walking through my day doing what the Spirit has called me to do, these passages of Scripture keep coming back to me as I try to understand I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to understand. Somehow I feel like I was born with a slow mind. For some reason, I'm not able to grasp the fullness of the gospel of Jesus. And I keep stretching to try to understand it. And one of the passages of scripture that keeps calling me back to it is found in the book of Genesis, the third chapter we find here the story of Adam and Eve being faced with the dragon or the serpent. And with irony, Satan is speaking to her, specifically to Eve. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, this is just very basic stuff. Eating is essential to me. I don't know how it is for you, but... I find when I haven't eaten for a day, I'm hungry. We have to have water, food, and shelter. Three essentials. This story deals with food, that essential item. If we don't eat it, we don't live. The serpent is speaking to them about food. The woman answers which she should not have done. She answers the dragon. She said, God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. The serpent answers, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, or you will become the judge of what is good or evil. God will no longer need to be the judge for you. He will no longer tell you what to do. You will have the power in yourself to determine your course of action. Now, please just understand with me. This woman had about her the glorious covering of God. She was in inner face with the with the holy spirit she could have whispered holy spirit or god or father help me what should i answer and there would have been an instantaneous answer she had direct communication with her creator god there was nothing in her heart that was deceptive or evil There was no coiled serpent in her spirit. 
She was pure and she was clean. She had never sinned. She had never rebelled. She had never had a bitter, angry thought in her heart. And she makes a decision from that perspective to violate her relationship with God of her own free choice. Now, why this is so stunning to me is that all of us who are human have experienced the coiled serpent in our own hearts. I would guess that there's not one of you, regardless of the background that you come from, that if I were to ask you some very straightforward, honest, serious questions, there are things in your life that you are ashamed of. And you frankly would not want anyone else to know that you did it or you felt it or you said it or you acted on it. You would simply be ashamed. That's that coiled serpent of darkness in your heart. Eve had no coiled serpent in her heart. The serpent was out there. And she chose deliberately to reach out and take what would give that serpent access to come and coil himself in her being. And now she had a direct interface, not with the God of heaven, but with the demon of hell. And then it says in Scripture that Adam gave birth to a son born in his image, not in the image of God born in the image of Adam with a coiled serpent in his heart. Because he quickly said to his wife, I'm taking you over God. And so he also fell. And the description is all through scripture, Adam fell. Well, what does that mean? It's not just allegorical. He smashed on the rocks below. He lost the interface with God. And he is now completely cut off from God. In the Hebrew, it is dying and he he died. It's present and it's future. He died spiritually the day they took of that fruit and sided with the demonic power. They died. And then physically, they also died. But later... All of us in this room are facing the reality that there is 100% mortality rate. All of us are going to die. The reason we're going to die is because of that coiled serpent, sin. Sin is rebellion. Now, in my heart, I'm saying, how am I supposed to make a decision to serve a holy and righteous God when even Adam and Eve could not serve a holy and righteous God and they were perfect. And it becomes very quickly obvious that we do not have the power or the ability to serve a righteous God. We simply don't have that power. We were cast out of our home and there has been a part of man's heart throughout the centuries that always wants to try to create a place. I never forget one woman. She called me and said, Pastor, would you do our wedding? I said, I'll be happy to come by and talk with you and your fiance. I'll talk with you about it. And, and so I asked them, what is it that you really want in your wedding? 
And what is it that you really want in your marriage? Her answer astounded me. I want a house with a white picket fence around it. And I'm going to call it the happy fence. I want a marriage that's happy. I want a place I never have to move from. I want security. I want the assurance that I'll always be loved and that I can always love. I don't want any conflict or any fighting in my family. I said, I'm sorry. I can't do that kind of wedding because you're not that kind of woman. She said, what do you mean? I said, are you expecting me in your wedding ceremony to remove the bitterness of your heart? I don't have any bitterness, Pastor. I said, oh, have you had any fights with Mark? Yes. What have the fights been about? Well, he wants this and I want that. I said, oh, that's a bitter spirit. Are you asking if I'll take that out of you at your wedding? Well, no. But we've all had this desire. Don't you want to be loved perfectly? I do. Tell me, those of you who are married, when you got married, didn't you hope that your husband or your wife would love you perfectly? Some of you are shaking your head no. Then you didn't have any chance, did you? You married the wrong person. The deepest cry of the human heart, can I be loved? The first question in any social gathering, and I guarantee you, it's the first question a person asks when they come into the National Prayer Chapel. And that is, is there a place for me here where I can be safe? And some people have come to me after a few times here and they've said, Pastor, the National Prayer Chapel is not safe. I said, of course it's not safe. We're in the devil's territory. We're trying to establish a colony in the devil's territory, and we're going to get shot at constantly. So this desire is real, but it stretches all the way back in time to when that was reality. When Adam and Eve perfectly loved one another and were willing to lay their lives down for each other. And then the coiled serpent came and took up residence in our hearts. And it didn't take very long. Cain and Abel come with their offerings for God. Cain brings the very best produce from his garden and his vineyards. Abel brings a lamb. The lamb is accepted because it's a symbol of the coming Messiah. Cain's offering is not accepted. God turns his face from it. They go out into the field. They have an argument. And Cain kills Abel. The first murder, the first murder came out of worshiping God because there was such a hunger to be accepted, to be loved. And so Cain kills Abel because Cain is not finding himself acceptable before God. I mean, I don't know about you, but the question of can I be acceptable before God? Can I be loved? Does God love you? 
Do you know if God loves you? Or do you have an aching place in your heart that you've grown accustomed to? You've become cynical about because you're not sure if God loves you or if even your husband or your wife loves you or your mom or your dad loves you or your classmates love you. My brother Don is two years older than me. He's kind of a gruff guy, but he has a very tender heart and a great sense of humor. I did something a few years ago that just totally changed our relationship. It was shocking to him, he told me later. He didn't know how to deal with it. He lives in Idaho. We were talking on the telephone, and at the conclusion of the, of the conversation, I said, Don, what? I really love you, and I'm glad you're my brother. Oh, goodbye. And he hung up. He called me about two weeks later. Ray? Yeah? I love you too. Bye. Boom. (laughs) I laughed. I cried. And now every time I talk with my brother, and I talk with him at least once a week, he always ends the conversation by saying, I love you. I mean, do you know how that touches my heart? The cry of our heart is really, does anyone love me? Now, we cover it over with all kinds of busyness, and we can even cover it over with gruffness. Because a lot of us are not real comfortable talking about This love stuff. Right? I'm sorry, I'm a man. Some things you don't talk about easily or quickly. But all of us have at the heart of our soul a great hunger to know, does anybody love me? Does God love me? Cain was willing to kill He was willing to murder his brother because he had been rejected by God. Now, it's really important to recognize that when Adam and Eve fell, they lost their loveliness. And the human race, some of the ugliest things are happening around the world in Washington, D.C., Lying, cheating, stealing, sexual uncleanness, greedy. Jesus said that the mark of the church should be that those who call themselves Christians love one another. That that's the mark of the Christian, that they love each other. The basis of that love is what Jesus Christ did at the cross, where the scriptures tell us that God demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners. So the question has been answered, does God love you? The answer is unequivocally, absolutely, 
Yes, Jesus loves you. That's why my favorite song is that little child's song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. It's a deep abiding love. It's not a love that is a flash and then it's gone. He doesn't love us one minute and then condemn us to hell the next minute. He doesn't say, I love you if you'll do this. He just says, I love you. Now, it's not unconditional love. It's unfailing love. It is love that is not measurable. He poured everything out on Calvary for us to say, I love you. And to open a way for us to to come back into fellowship with Jesus. As I think about this fall, I think about this horrendous turning from God. I know that in my heart, I have many times turned from God. And I've chosen what I thought would be in my best interest as opposed to what he said was in my best interest. I know out of fear, I've made choices that were wrong. I know out of anger, I've made choices that were wrong. I've said things that I wished I could pull back out of the air, but words are like feathers. Once said, you can never collect them again. They blow everywhere. When I look at my record, I review my past. I'm overwhelmed by what I've done and said that was selfish and unloving and unkind. And so for me, it's a great humility to come before Jesus and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, I repent, I won't do it again. But I know my repentance and my being sorry is not sufficient to make me into a loving man. I know there has to be the manifestation of God in my life. There has to be a creative act of God as he comes into every human soul and begins to transform that soul. And we speak here about suffering. I want to clarify what that suffering is. That suffering is the medicine that brings wholeness and healing and love to our souls. We have become so twisted that we think that when God comes and tries to take from us that bitter serpent, he's taking something precious and we want to hang on to it. And so we're going to hang on to our anger. We're going to hang on to our bitterness. We're going to hang on to our self-righteousness. We're going to hang on to our ways. We're going to hang on to our traditions. And when those things begin to be taken away from us, they are like security blankets. You know, what would happen if we lost control? Well, some of us think we'd die. And if anybody tries to break our control, we're going to get very angry and put them in their place. We know how we want things to go, and we're going to make certain they go according to our schedule. 
And God comes and he says, let me take that control. Let me be in charge now. And we say, you've got to be kidding, right? You're not serious. He says, okay, let's put some circumstances in your life where you finally are out of control. And then maybe you'll come to me and say, I can't do it, Jesus. Would you be in charge? What I want you to hear today is that it's an act of love and mercy and kindness on God's part to bring circumstances into our life that we call suffering, that he calls setting us free. Isn't it strange that a person should become so accustomed to their jail cell that they would think that they are being harmed by someone coming and unlocking the door and taking us out. I spoke to a man who had been in prison for many years, and I said to him, how is it being out of prison? He said, you don't know how many times I've almost gone back. I can't stand all this freedom. I don't know what to do with myself. When I was in prison, I knew when I was going to eat, I didn't have to do anything to get that food. It was just put in front of me. I knew where I was going to sleep. I knew every part of my schedule was very clear to me. But he said, now I don't know where I'm going to sleep. I don't know if I'm going to keep my job. I don't know where I'm going to eat. He said, it's much easier back in prison. I said, yes, but it's also called jail, isn't it? He said, yes, and I'm free now, but I don't like it very much. God comes and he wants to take us out of that prison cell and he wants to set us free of that root of bitterness. He wants to begin to whisper into our hearts that he loves us and we're saying, I don't trust you. I have experience. I think you're trying to hurt me. How is it that God comes to deliver us, to set us free? And we say, no, I want my prison cell. I want to be able to get hurt and retreat into my cave. A friend once said to me, Ray, you're really hard to be friends with. I said, why? I'm not hard to be friends. He said, oh, you're very hard to be friends with. Why? Because of where you live. And I said, where do I live? He said, you live on the bottom of the ocean, back in the back of a cave, and you have a wall in front of your cave. And he said, I feel like I'm in a rowboat rowing above your cave calling, hey, Ray, come on out, come on out. And you're saying, leave me alone. I was shocked by what he said. But I also had to be honest and say, I feel safer when I'm hidden. I feel less safe when I am vulnerable and open and everyone can see. And part of the decision I had to make with that friend and since I've made with all of you is to move out of the cave at the bottom of the ocean and be open and vulnerable and not to hide anymore. And I made a vow. It'll seem like a very silly vow to you, perhaps, but I made a vow. I said, when I'm happy, I'm going to laugh. When I'm sad, I'm going to cry. 
when I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. And when I'm tired, I'm going to sleep. I wish that were my original, but a very old man. I asked him, what's the secret of your old age? And that was the answer he gave me. The question really is, how are we going to choose to live in relationship with other people and with ourselves and with our God? Are we going to choose to live in that tight knot, feeling unloved, having an angry spirit, feeling like we have to lie? No, I know none of you lie. If you say you're right, I'll tell you you've just lied. All of us have lied. When did I lie? I lied when I felt threatened and thought I could get away with covering over. Hmm? That's when we lie. But very few people will just lie to lie. We'll tell that lie to escape some unpleasantness, some, something we interpret as lack of love. How are you? I'm okay. Are you kidding me? Your body language says you're not okay. Your face says you're not okay. Why are you lying to me? Try that this week with somebody. Be a distance away so you don't get a black eye. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we come to the book of Luke. Luke, the eighth chapter. And again, the question is going to be, Can I be loved? And how am I going to operate my life? Jesus tells a parable. It's about a farmer who goes out and sows his seed in the field. And as he's sowing this seed, some fell along a path. It was trampled on. The birds of the air ate it up. This is Luke, the eighth chapter, verse six. Some fell on a rock. And when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, it yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. In this simple parable, what's so startling about it for me is that he's not talking about seeds and farming. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about real people and the way we function with each other. So when the disciples were with him alone, they didn't understand this parable. And they begin to ask him about it. And he says to them, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. So this parable contains the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now, very quickly, I'd like to walk through these four kinds of soil. You, you recognize that the soil represents you. Your heart is the soil. Now, let's be clear. You are responsible for your life. Abraham Lincoln said, when a man reaches 40 years of age, he's responsible for his own face. In other words, you can't blame mom and dad after you're 40. You can try before that, but it's really not worthwhile. You are who you are, and you are responsible for you. And whether you end up in heaven or hell 
will be strictly dependent on the decisions you make and how you choose to respond to what God does for you. And God does something for every one of us. And he likens our heart to soil. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Now, recognize that he's speaking here about believers. He's speaking about people who are following him. And he's saying, some of you have hearts that you have walked the religious road so many times that your heart has grown hard. The tenderness of your heart has been replaced with cynicism and anger. And when I come, he says, and I try to plant something in your heart, you resist it. You say no. You say, that's too scary. I can't accept that. So the seed lays on your heart, and you cast it off. There's no change of behavior. There's no healing in your spirit. You already know all the answers. So what do you need this for? I've spoken to you about about love and about openness and about vulnerability and about a gentle heart. And yet some of you will leave this service and you'll still be living in your cave, the bottom of the ocean. And you'll still be saying, I'm mad, and I'm not going to change. Well, did you hear what pastor said? Did it? Yes, but I'm not going to change. It's not safe. And so the devil comes, and he takes those thoughts from your heart, and you walk away, and you have no memory. And someone says to you, what did the pastor say at church today? I don't remember. I forgot it as soon as I walked out the door. So for you, preaching the word is like listening to a piece of music. It's entertainment, and then it's forgotten, and you move on to the next piece of entertainment in your life. That's the hard soil, packed down with fear and anger and bitterness, packed down with determination that you're going to protect yourself, that you're in charge that you're not going to surrender your life to Jesus. You're not going to give up control. You're going to be rigid and tight and protect yourself and what belongs to you. And the devil comes and takes the seed away from your heart. There's a second kind of soil found in verse 13. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. That is, in a time of suffering, they fall away. It's okay. You'll try being open. You'll try letting go of the bitterness of your heart or the anger. You'll try until somebody gets in your face, and then you forget all about it. And the same old, same old comes over your heart again. Or fear rises up in your spirit, and you say, It's not safe. I'm not going to say a word. I'm out of here. 
I'm not an extrovert by nature. I'm an introvert. I've learned many skills of the extrovert. Last night, I went to dinner at a wonderful restaurant. I walked in the front door, and as soon as I walked in, there was a long table with about 20 people at the table. And they all began to say, hi, Ray. I was so overwhelmed, I didn't know how to deal with it. And so I went around the table, and I talked with each one and gave everybody a hug. And I could feel their love for me. And I have to admit today, I was terrified. How do I respond to this kind of... I mean, I know as a pastor, I, I put my pastor suit on, you know, and I can come and I can preach. And then I, as soon as the service is over, I want to leave. That's just personality, who I am. It's not right or wrong. I don't leave. I stay around and I chit-chat and talk and listen and pray with people. But when suddenly an overwhelming flood of love comes from people for whom you think you have done nothing, how do you handle that? This soil, the rock, they receive the love of Jesus. They begin to understand that they can give their heart to Jesus. They can give their soul to Jesus. They can confess him as their Lord and Savior. And then hard times come. And then they have to decide. Am I going to put my roots down deeper into the values I believe in? Am I going to live by what I've been given? Or am I going to go back to my old coiled serpent nature? And walk with anger and with bitterness when I'm mistreated? It'd be interesting for me. Could I do just a very brief survey? How many of you feel that in some way in the last week you were mistreated by someone? Would you raise your hand? Majority of hands went up. My hand's up with you. Maybe now I should ask the question, how many of you mistreated someone this week? Some of you who had not raised your hands before, raise it on that one. If the Christian faith does not change the way you treat people, of what value is the Christian faith? If the Christian faith does not give us a capacity to love and respect other people, to treat them with dignity and with kindness, without any bitterness or any anger, Of what value is the Christian faith? These people on on the rocks are the shallow ones who will grab a hold of something that they think they like, and then the minute they begin to suffer, their hearts turn cold, and they grow defensive, and they begin to hide once more. And Jesus is saying... You'll never produce anything with your life when you operate that way. And then we come to the choking Christian. And this is really the heart of the issue. These are those Christians that choke on the demands of Jesus to be separate from the world 
Jesus says to them in Luke 8.14, go your way. Go your way. The choking Christian believes that what God is trying to do in separating you from darkness is really unpleasant and unwelcome. This is the person who would rather stay in jail because they know what to expect and they know how to function. And they're terrified of freedom. The Christian gospel provides complete freedom and joy to the life of the believer. It removes that coiled serpent. It removes that darkness. It causes us to walk in purity in relationships. It causes us not to use another person or to abuse another person. It causes us to respect all men and women. It causes us to treat others as we would be treated. To be released from that prison is to be made into a new creature. It's to be made new after the likeness of Jesus. There's a word in Scripture, regeneration. It literally means, it's two words in the Greek put together. And it literally means to return to the original state. So what Jesus Christ did when he died on Calvary was open for us a small gate that if we enter it, we can be restored to the condition of Adam and Eve before they fell. But this time, with the wisdom not to listen to the serpent, knowing the miserable jail we all ended up in, the death and the destruction, the harm that we have caused and that others have caused us, we will never again return, even though we will be free to return to sin if we should so choose. But we will have had the wisdom of the ages by the walk we've experienced, and we will not go back to the way of lying and cheating and stealing and bitterness and anger. This regeneration is promised to us right now in this life. It's promised that in this life right now, that old, bitter, sinful nature can be stripped off of us that we can be utterly, totally restored to the image of Jesus now as a present experience. This choking Christian has thorns that grow up in their heart and in their lives. These thorns are identified as life's worries, and the Greek word there is not a neurotic concern. It's life's responsibilities. I was speaking with my dad one time about dying. And I asked him, are you concerned about dying, dad? He was probably 75 at that point. We were out in the garage. He had a business. And he operated out of his garage. And he had a tub of water there. He put his finger in the water. 
And then he pulled it out and he said, where was my finger, Ray? I said, I can't tell. He said, when you die, you pull your finger out of life. And life goes on. And everything that you thought was so important will either stop or continue and nobody will really care. I said, what are you saying, Dad? He said, there's only one thing that really matters that counts for eternity. And that's how you treat people. That's the love you share with other people. That's all that lasts. All the responsibilities that you think are so vital, Ray, somebody else will do them when you're gone. They're not what is important. Oh, yes, you have to do some of them, like I had to do my wash yesterday. To mow the grass soon. There's some things you have to do. You go to work. I come here and preach. But essentially, all that really matters is what you do with the people around you. And do you help them on the journey toward heaven? Or do you treat them with disrespect? We get consumed by the life's responsibilities and they draw us away from that which is essential. And the second thorn that grows up is the love of money. Inevitably, when a couple comes to me for marital counseling, the first question I ask, how's your budget? What's happening financially in your family? Because almost always trouble in marriages start with finances. Somebody's hanging on to the money. Somebody's spending too much money. Somebody's trying to control the money. There's not enough money to go around. So at the end of the month, you don't have and you blame the love of money. And Jesus is saying, that's a thorn that will keep you from what is really essential. And the third thorn is pleasures of this life. Where you just enjoy things. You enjoy food, you enjoy television, you enjoy hiking, kayaking, biking, whatever it is you enjoy. And you want to spend your time doing that in a way that blocks you from that which is most important. And that is that intimacy with Jesus Christ and that intimacy with other people. Both are harmed. And Jesus is saying these thorns will grow up and they will prevent you from producing any fruit in your life. They will prevent you from winning anyone else to the kingdom of Jesus. When I married my late wife, Jan, she had not been in church for 17 years. The Lord was very clear, court her. And he said, don't talk to her about religion. Just love her. So she came up to visit, and I did not invite her to come to church with me. I prayed for her, but I didn't invite her. But my daughter Heidi got next to her and said, come to church with me. Well, she could take that from Heidi. She would not have taken that well from me. And so wouldn't you believe I stood up to preach, and there Heidi and Jan were sitting right in front of me on the front row. And you all who had the privilege of knowing her 
knows that she became a powerful preacher of the gospel. Never because I nagged her, never because I corrected her, simply because I loved her. I cared about her. And she loved me. And out of that love we shared, there was no criticism and no bitterness. Oh, there were some disagreements. I'd be lying if I told you other. But we were able to talk those through and love each other through those. Now, if you'd heard that argument, you might not have thought we were being too loving at that point in the conversation because they were sometimes pretty straight. But we grew up. We matured. This choking Christian is a person who is unwilling to love. They have what they want in their life. They are self-centered. They are self-concerned. They are self-obsessed. They use other people. They use them to get what they want. And the choking Christian never produces any fruit that is holy before God. And then there is that last kind of Christian. It is those with a noble heart in verse 15. The seed on the good soil stands with those with a noble heart, a good heart, who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering or by suffering, produce a crop. By suffering patience, produce a crop. See, the problem is when we're unwilling to suffer or undergo criticism for standing firm on the principles that we know to be true, that everyone should be treated with love and respect and courtesy, that every person is valuable to God, that we're not going to use them or abuse them, when we finally begin to understand that Jesus loves us so much that he died for us to set us free, to release us from captivity, to release us from the bondage of our own prisons that we have built up out of a false sense of needing the security. When we are hidden in Jesus Christ, we're free. But again, this persevering Christian is going to suffer. And the suffering is going to be in denying myself my prison. Does that sound like strange suffering? To deny myself my prison. That is called in Scripture suffering where I'm willing to open my heart, I'm willing to love, I'm willing to be vulnerable, I am unwilling to speak with harshness to another person, I'm unwilling to judge another person, I'm unwilling to hide my life from another person. I'm going to be open and vulnerable, and I'm going to lift up the name of Jesus And I am going to, in every way possible, say, Jesus, come and live in me. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives in me. What was crucified? Bitterness, anger, 
hardness of heart, self-will, self-preservation. Those are the things that Christians speak about being crucified of. Isn't it strange that we would hold on to darkness, to hiddenness? Isn't it strange that we would hang on to hate and control and manipulation? These aren't things I want, and yet it's suffering when I let go of them. Because that's been my security from the time I was a little child. I grew up with two older brothers. I learned how to fight to protect myself. And I thought that was what was necessary. If they hit me, hit them harder. We've all grown up with this self-defensive attitude in our hearts. But at some point, we have to grow up and say, has to be crucified. I'm not going to defend myself anymore. I challenge you today, find someone that you love and just say to them, I love you. Even when I'm mad at you, I love you. Even when we disagree, I love you. We can love because God loves us. This week, be crucified with Christ. Be conscious of what you do to protect yourself. Be conscious of your arguments that are dead end. Be conscious of what you choose to do to protect yourself from the pain of another person. And instead of doing that, why don't you go talk with them about it? Why not be vulnerable? Why not be like Jesus? The cross upon which Jesus died Is a shelter in which we can hide And His grace so free Is sufficient for me And deep is the fountain That's wide as the There's room at the cross for you Yes, there's room at the cross for you Though millions have come There's still room for one Yes, there's room at the cross for you Millions have found him a friend And have turned from their old life of sin Still the Savior awaits To open the gates To welcome the lost Before it's too there's room at the cross for you. 
Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, that's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. Yes, there's room at the cross for you. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Come visit us. I love you, my brother and my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Of his glory.